Well, good morning. Just to say if you're S1, S2, or S3, we've produced some sheets for you to work your way through. Um, you should have been given one if you haven't been given one. Uh, S1s, S2s, S3s, just stick your hand in the air and hopefully something will be got to you. Are we covered there? Good. Okay. Um, Kath and I, my wife and I, we've only been in Edinburgh for about the last eight and a half uh, weeks since moving up here to work alongside Charlotte as well as FIEC. And we are discovering gladly that Edinburgh has some of the most beautiful buildings of any city in the world. Have a look at a few of them. They'll be on screen. Maybe you'd like to uh, tell me uh, what buildings they are. What's this? Okay, Scottish National Gallery, it's just along the way. Uh, in that direction, by the way, I'm not going to give directions to others because I don't know. Um, next one, okay, What's, wh wh which, which one is this? Okay, George Heriot's School, I, I understand it's also known as Hogwarts, but that's by the by, George Heriot's School, let's go for this. Holyrood, Holyrood Palace. Um, now this one, picture isn't as good, but thank you, Old College, University of Edinburgh, and finally, St. Giles, St. Giles Cathedral. Now these buildings, let's put the five of them together, uh, shall we, on the next slide there. Okay, these buildings have a shape, they have a structure, they have a symmetry, both internally and externally, that make them very pleasing and delightful, both to the eye and also to the mind. We applaud the architects who conceived them and the workers who constructed them. Genius! And here in Charlotte Chapel this morning, we return to examine a book written over 2,700 years ago that is as brilliant, if not more so, than any of these great buildings. It has a shape and a structure and a symmetry that are nothing less than genius. And then throw into the mix that Isaiah is divinely inspired, that it is part of the Bible and is incredibly relevant to today, then you can understand why we want to understand its message and why here at Charlotte we've been working our way steadily, slowly through this great book to understand more about it. And our attention now has moved to chapter 59. Now, chapter 59 has four very clear sections. And in fact, I'm going to continue to ask you to do some work because I want you to show that uh, handling Isaiah is not just something for the guys who stand up front. As we engage in Scripture, if you're a Christian here, you should be working your way through this book, asking certain questions of it. And again, this is a great passage just to test your skills of observation and understanding. Uh, let's go. Have a look at verses 1 to 3. Now, just have a scan through. Remember page 747 
in the Bible. Now, what are the commonest words here? Um, rather than call out uh, loud, I, I, I'd rather you just engage with the process. Just have a look and see what are some of the commonest words here. Well, again, on screen, let's bring up the answer. And the word, it, words are you or your. They occur nine times. Okay, let's move to the next section. Let's have a look at verses 4 to 8. What are the commonest words here? Again, just scan through, look through, read through for yourself. And the commonest words here are the words they or there. Comes up 16 times. Now you, we're getting the hang of this, aren't we? Okay, let's go on to verses 9 to 15. What are the commonest words here? Now already you, you probably see a pattern emerging. That's good. Just continue down there. Do you see something has changed? What are the commonest words there? It's the words, let's give the answer, we, or us, or our. They occur 21 times. Now the final section, which is second half of verse 15 through to verse 21, what are the commonest words here? And again, by now you, you probably know what you should be looking for. And we'll put that on screen. It's the words he, or his, or him. And that occurs 16 times. So you can see, can you see, there are four clear sections which have been distinguished by what we call personal pronouns, by different personal pronouns. And we'll let the shape of the passage, it has this deliberate fourfold shape, shape what we need to say this morning. So we'll be working according to that shape, the shape that's in the passage. So as we go to the first section, verses 1 to 3, we're going to summarize it in this way and say empty religion is deceiving. Empty religion is Deceiving, Because the question we need to ask of this, these opening verses is, who is the you that's being addressed? This is the common word that's being used by Isaiah. Who is this you that he's talking about? What group of people is Isaiah addressing in this section? Well, clearly it's those we found complaining in the last chapter. Those who had the slot machine mentality who thought that just by performing certain actions, they could guarantee a favorable response to God. And last week, our lead pastor, Paul, was, was talking about that to us. So look at verse 58, verse 3. It will be on screen as well. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? You see, they're suggesting that God is either too weak or he's too far removed to deal with the problems that they're facing. So Isaiah then comes thundering in 
with his retort. There in verse 1, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. You get what he's saying to these people. He's not powerless. Nor is he insensitive. Actually, says Isaiah, the problem is not with God, but with you. Verse 2. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And what's more, he says, this sinful rebellion of these people contaminates the whole of their being. Everything they do, everything they say is evidence that they're fully implicated in all the crimes that are taking place in Israel. Just, again, look at verse 3. For your hands are stained with blood, your, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken falsely, and your tongue mutters wicked things. Do you see how Isaiah is saying everything about you is contaminated and is implicated? And let me say in passing that religion can be one of the best disguises for sinful and selfish people. They imagine that just because they come to church, just because they perform certain actions, that God is somehow obligated to look after them that somehow God is obligated to give them a free pass into heaven. And I'm fearful that there might be such people listening to me right now. You think that being a churchgoer is sufficient. Actually, you feel pretty good about the fact that you got up this morning and you've come to church. You think that doing certain good or religious things gives you credit with God. Whereas your self-seeking rebellion goes unchecked and the terrifying truth is that God has hidden his face from you and does not even hear you. Yes, empty religion is deceiving. But it doesn't end there. The next section shows us that empty and fake religion is intimately connected to social injustice. Let's go on to that next section. That was verses 4 to 8. And we're calling this godless behavior is destructive. Godless behavior is destructive. You see, the specific you of verses 1 to 3 now changes into a more general description of what godless people do. And so the word they comes to the fore. And the first thing that Isaiah points out is that when you've dispensed with God, when you've dispensed with his absolute justice and holiness, then what replaces it is a legal system which isn't fair, but is geared towards the strong and the rich and the clever. I would suggest we've seen recent uh, illustrations of that in our nation's history. Verse 4, no one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. 
They rely on empty arguments. They utter lies. They conceive trouble. They give birth to evil. And the outcome of such a godless way of thinking is that it seems to promise complete well-being. You know, let's forget God. Let's do our own thing. Let's go our own way, and it will be great. But it ends up delivering outcomes that actually are worse than useless. And here, Isaiah uses the idea of eggs and cobwebs. One which seems to promise food, the other which seems to promise beauty. Have a look again, verse 5 into verse 6. They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die. And when one is broken, an adder is hatched. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing. They cannot cover themselves with what they make. You see, Isaiah is saying, eat a viper's egg, and the poison in it actually will kill you. Or let a viper's egg hatch, and the baby snake is just as venomous as an adult. Or try to wrap yourself in a beautifully designed spider's web, and it will break, and it will provide no protection. You see, both promising so much. There's an egg. There's that beautiful web. But both delivering so little. And that's precisely the picture of God rejecting thinking, even when it tries to use religion. And then Isaiah gathers all those words that he'd used up until now in his prophecy, uh, words that he'd used to describe how people can get to God. If you've been working your way through us, uh, Isaiah, you'll have found words like ways and paths and roads. And these were words he'd used to talk about how we get to God. But now, he shows that actually when people reject God, they'll not only be deeply disappointed with what their life produces, but they'll find they're on their way on a highway to hell. Second part of verse 6 into verse 8. Their deeds are evil deeds, and acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet, here's this traveling language, their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. They pursue evil schemes. Acts of violence mark their ways, the way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one walks along them. No one who walks along them will know peace. Now, although this sounds extreme, this not only characterized God rejecting Israel at that time, but it also describes all who look to their own efforts and their own philosophies and who look even to their own religious performance. And maybe you can relate to the emptiness and the disappointment that's being spoken of here. It hasn't satisfied. You've thrown off God. You've developed your own way of thinking. You thought you've got the better way forward, but it has disappointed. It hasn't satisfied you. It hasn't enriched you as a person. Actually, at times, it has been destructive of your relationships. 
At times, it has been destructive of your happiness. At times, it has been destructive of your health. And you know no peace in your heart or in your conscience. And maybe your eyes are just beginning to see these things. Which leads us to the third section. We noted that's in verses 9 to 15. And we're calling this true repentance is desperate. True repentance is desperate. And, and you see, we noted, didn't we, the personal pronoun, pronoun now changes from pointing the finger out. He'd been talking about they, and it's now pointing the finger in. He's now talking about us and we. It's not just about them. We're implicated in it as well. We've been infected. We share in the sins that litter our society. And so Isaiah, along with that small godly minority who lived in Jerusalem at that time, recognized that they also were deeply implicated, that they shared the fruits of such godless behavior. They weren't able to stand on the fringes and just sort of throw stones from a distance. They needed to acknowledge their solidarity with this corrupt society. And, and, and so Isaiah uses the language of light and dark. Have a look at verse 9 as it runs into verse 10. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight, among the strong, we are like the dead. See, these are not just people who need their eyes fixing so that they could see better, so that they could correct their steps. These are people who have no eyes. Their situation is desperate. Total darkness surrounds them. There is no quick fix solution. It's not the partial reformation of society thereafter. It's the complete recreation of individuals. And so as they see the terrible condition they're in, there's a guttural moan of frustration and trouble and despair. Verse 11, we all growl like bears. We mourn we moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice, but find none for deliverance. But it is far away. You see, here are the godly, and they're seeing this, and they're saying, we're implicated. It infects us. And as they stand before a holy God, all that comes out is just, oh, it's that guttural groan as they respond to what they're seeing. And in fact, Isaiah goes on to list the way in which they have failed God. Just... Pick out the different words he uses to describe what they've participated in. Verses 12 to 15. For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion, and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, inciting revolt and oppression, uttering lies our hearts have conceived, 
So justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. Now, you may think this is way over the top. You know, in our positive, feel-good, affirming age, this actually looks deeply disturbing. You might have read that and said, hey, actually, what these guys need is some time with a counselor and maybe then some meds just to sort of balance off this, this stuff. And you maybe want to point out the good things and you maybe want to advise Isaiah and his friends, look, guys, <laughs> just don't get too carried away. Things aren't, aren't that bad. Look, guys, you're pretty decent people. You know, there are far worse people than you around at this time. But my friends, can I tell you that it's only when we see ourselves as we really are, it's only when we agree with God's assessment of us, it's only when we don't go shifting the blame onto others that rescue and salvation can come. My friends, what you've been reading on the screen, this isn't some expression of mental sickness. This is actually a declaration of real insight and clarity. This is how things really are. You see, you might be the most respectable, law-abiding, religious person here this morning. But until you see that you also have been affected and infected by the lust and pride and self-congratulating and coveting spirit of this age, then you won't be able to see how infinitely vile your sins really are before an infinitely holy and just God. You see, the great overarching message of the Bible isn't about changing your lifestyle so you can be happier. It's about confessing and acknowledging your sin and shame so you can be made new by God's grace. This isn't about having a little facelift to look better. It's about having a radical heart transplant to save your life. You see, true repentance is desperate. But the fourth section, the final section that I want us to move on to, there in verses 15 through to 21, I've entitled this, Yahweh's response is devastating. You see, Yahweh is God's special name. It reveals that he will be true to the covenant, to the agreement that he had with his people. And what we see in these verses as the focus turns from our sin to God's response, it's maybe not what you expect. As we look at these verses, first of all, I see that God sees and responds. God sees and responds. It's there in verses 59 through to six, uh, 15 through to 16. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there, is no, there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. 
You see, God is intimately involved in our world and he is involved in our lives. What happens, my friends, doesn't go unnoticed. And neither does it just slide past him. The fact of the lack of justice and the total inability of mankind to correct it arouses God's settled anger and displeasure. God sees. God responds. But then secondly, I notice God initiates and God judges. It's there in verses 16 to 18. So his own arm achieved salvation for him. And his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so will he repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. Godless behavior doesn't just provoke God to intense holy, personal displeasure, but also to active, terrifying, awesome acts of justice. Sin can't be overlooked. Sin can't be ignored. It can't be treated as a light thing or as an insignificant thing. It will be dealt with. Every sin receives what it deserves. And every injustice will be dealt with. God initiates, God judges, but then thirdly, finally, God reaches and redeems. It's there in verses 19 to 20. From the west, people will fear the name of the Lord. And from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. See, I think the astounding thing is not that God should be incensed by the rebellion of people. The incredible thing is that he should show mercy. That he should be patient. That he should be compassionate towards the totally undeserving. But how can he do that? We have just said every sin must be dealt with. So how can God be just? How can God be true to his holy character and yet show grace towards those who only deserve his infinite and fearsome anger? Well, again, the passage gives us the answer. It tells us there in verse 20 that the Redeemer will come. And we know well enough that this Redeemer, who's already been hinted at back in Isaiah 52 and 53, is none other than Jesus Christ. As we've already seen when we were in Isaiah 52, verse 3. To be redeemed has the sense of being bought out of slavery by a payment. And that's actually what Jesus, when he came 700 years later, himself points to when he says this. The verse will be on screen, Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In fact, it's what Paul pointed out to Titus in Titus 2, 
verses 13 to 14. Our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. You see, it was Jesus who through his death on a cross 2,000 years ago paid the price to set sinners free. He received in his own body what we deserve. He took our sins. He received the wrath that we rightly merit. It's what we noted back in Isaiah 53. Let me again remind you of those famous verses in verses 5 to 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In fact, in the passage before us, we have another hint of what this rescuer would do. In, in verse 16, we, we read that God was appalled, that there was no one to intervene. And literally in Hebrew, that word intervene means to cover the breach or to cover the gap with his body. It actually is a word that has the sense of someone who lays down their life for the cause. And it was only the perfectly obedient Son of God who was able to do that for sinners. He is our only hope for rescue. Friends, God's holy anger against sin is devastating. But even more devastating to my pride is that God himself should so love me as to take what I deserve so I might go free. And when I see that, when I see the depth and the horror and the pervasiveness of my sin and, and when I see the glorious heights of his love, then it breaks me. Then I repent. Then I throw myself upon the mercy of God because he has shown me I am vile, I am a sinner, I deserve nothing more than his wrath. Even the things I try to boast of, they're just so flimsy and foul. But as I see his holiness, I see also his amazing grace, and I hear that wonderful invitation. I see the work on Calvary, the one who'd been promised from the beginning of time, and, uh, and I see that there, the sinless, obedient Son of God took upon himself my my sin. He took God's anger that I deserved. He suffered my hell. He took my death. Little wonder, therefore, that I throw myself upon the mercy of God. Of all people here, I am the most helpless in my sin, but I throw myself upon his grace, upon his mercy, upon his invitation. And my friends, let me conclude. I just want you to see this. This promise is conditional. Just in case you're sitting here and you say, well, this is wonderful. That, that's, that's great news. I'm going to go to heaven. Look at what it says. Verse 20. The Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. What will you do? Do you, do you see it? 
Do, 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 you see it? Do, do, do you see your sin before a holy God? Do you see the wonder of a Savior who invites you to come to him and promises that he will turn no one away? Do, do you see it? Or are you like those people in Israel, even the religious people who Isaiah said they are blind? They cannot see. And it may be you are here this morning and you go, that guy at the front, he just got a little bit excited and emotional. What was all that about? You don't see it. You don't see it. My friends, this morning the invitation is, come, see God in his greatness, repent of your sins, throw yourself upon Jesus for mercy and he will not turn you away. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for such awesome love. We thank you for your word that with such genius arrangement reveals to us your holy character, but also reveals to us your grace and mercy. And thank you that this is what so many of us here have found true. We have seen that we're sinners and failures and that we've got nothing to boast about before anyone here in this place but we thank you that in Jesus we've found a savior we found a friend and we've found forgiveness Lord come and do your work in our lives we pray for Christ's sake Amen